You guys can grab a seat, head off to your classes if you're going to those. Well, Happy New Year. It's, yeah, it's a new year. That's an arbitrary date, right? We're like, wow, it's another day. It just happened to be a Friday or Saturday this year, right? New Year's is, is an interesting time, and I, I like it for a couple reasons. One is I feel like it's, it's kind of a natural break that, that causes all of us to maybe spend a little bit of time to look kind of where we've been maybe and where we're going. And a lot of times you have people that kind of come and they'll make like a New Year's resolution, right? Like, I'm going to, this year, I'm going to do X, or this year, this is going to happen. Well, what I specifically like about New Year's is that, is that most of you, if you can, like, if you're, if you're struggling with your memory a little bit, you can kind of blow the dust off of whatever part of your brain that needs to be reminded of what it was. But at the beginning of 2015, you kind of said or, or committed or, or had some idea of where you wanted to be by the end of 2015. And so what's nice about this arbitrary date and this, this time is that, is that as, as silly as it is, it's another day, it's another, another midnight, another clock, whatever. Some of us didn't even make it to that, right? But, but for, 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 for you, you have kind of this marker where you can kind of stop and look. You know, in science, they, they call this kind of the stage of, of gathering the data. So where you kind of look back and you kind of go, okay, so I said this personally, or I said this, this year I wanted to be married, or I wanted to have, we wanted to have kids, or we wanted to graduate school, or this year I wanted to get to college, or I wanted to start this relationship, or I wanted to, to read the Bible this way, or I wanted to spend time in prayer, or maybe this year was the year I, I tried to find a church to be a home. And you kind of set these, these markers that kind of came over the year. And the nice thing about the end of the year is that you can look in the rearview mirror. Right? You, can, you can look back in that rearview mirror and you can kind of see with clarity where, where you went and where you were going and what happened along the way. And some of you, you have big, huge hopes and aspirations at the beginning of 2015 and, and it took a, a massive U-turn and, and, and then another right and you were super lost. And by the end of 2015, what you hoped at the beginning was drastically different, different at the end. Some of you, you can see incremental steps along the way, choices that you made that got you further to where you are now. And in in all of us, what we can do, which is so beautiful and so awesome, and I love God for this, is that we can see so much clearer what he did in our life when we look back. Right? You, you, so many of us, we, 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 we hope God's present. We, we desire to see him present. Maybe some of you, this has been a year where you're, just, you're hanging by a thread as to whether God is real or not. When you can look backwards and you have to make a conscious choice to either give him credit or credit's due or to just call it chance. But most of us, and I'm assuming a lot of us, that spent, we're here in a church, that you can look back in the room here, you can see God's hand in this and this and this. And some of you, you don't like that you see his hand in some of the stuff, right? Some of the, some of the stuff you've been through this last year was so hard and so difficult and so, so painful that you're just glad you get to write a different number on the end of a paycheck or something this year. Like, I just don't want to deal with that number. I want 2015 to go away. But the thing is, is that that year was defining. A pastor said it this way, that your, your direction determines your destination, not intention. And some of us intended a lot of things at the beginning of the year, but our direction, the choices we made along the way, got us to where we are today. And what's unique, again, about the end of the year is that you have this clarity. Now, if you look back and you see God's hand, now zoom out a little bit further. Look two years back, three years, 10 years, some of us more seasoned people, 30, 40, 50 years. And you can see God's hand working in different areas and going along the way. And you can also see something else that's really, really somewhat painful at times, right? You see your poor decisions, your whoopses, Oh, I didn't, didn't want to do that. I wish I didn't do that. I, I wish I could just erase that whole month. 
man, it'd be nice if this didn't happen, if this place was gone. You, you can see it so clearly on just a, another year for us. And some of you, you, you had no intentionality. Do that. This is just another year, and you're just kind of just going through the motions. Like, I just keep running my plan. I got my plan, and this is where I'm going. And, and that may be a good thing, but it also may be a very, very painfully bad thing. See, because here's, here's, here's why this is a big deal. We began, or we ended the year before Christmas Eve, um, beginning chapter 23 in Matthew. And it's, it's the last of five big blocks of teaching that Jesus has on earth before he's crucified. And, and this one block of teaching isn't like the Sermon on the Mount. It isn't like his, his teaching to commission the disciples or, or even what he was doing through the parables of what the kingdom of God's like. This last teaching is a warning and of the future. This last set of teaching, he's going he's to communicate to us warnings for what we are to not do and what the future holds for us if we do or don't. And so you have this really, really interesting set of teaching that's not, it's not really fun. Honestly, I joked about it at the end of the year, like we're going to start the year out with, with some pretty horrific part of Matthew. We'll see. This is, like I said, this will be a really interesting church growth plan. You know, see how many people really love coming back after this week. But um, my assumption is that every single one of us, God has been trying to do something. He is doing something in your life. And you can see choices and steps and relationships and scriptures and blogs and, and whatever else that comes along where it just, it just kind of breathed life into that. And you started making some choices and you got to where you are today. Now, when you look in your rearview mirror, maybe you can see, ah, oh, I, I did get the career. I did get the marriage, or I, we, found, we had the kid, or, or, or we, we started college, or I did get an A finally, or whatever it may be. Like, you, you, you made those choices, but when you look in the rearview mirror, what, is it, what does it say spiritually? What, is it, what, is, what does your rearview mirror say spiritually? And for some of you, it's like, well, I, I you know, started following Christ when I was like eight, and so I'm 40, 30, 50, whatever it is. I don't know. I just kind of still do the same thing. I, I go to church periodically. I throw some money at them every now and then. I serve when I can. Like, I just try and make the right choices. And when you look at your rearview mirror, you realize that those choices actually haven't really gotten you very far. When you look at the rearview mirror, you can see clearly going, I'm not really sure that what God is trying to do with my life is actually what I'm doing right now. In fact, if I look at it a little bit more, I'd almost say that maybe I'm, I'm playing a different part than the part I was cast for. I, I, th- I, thought, I thought I was going to be this, but, but this and this and this and this and this, this kind of stacked up, and then I went this one way, and then I met that one person and I had that crazy night, and he kind of worked out this way, and, and, and now I'm here. In fact, I don't, I don't even really know how I got here. And the reason why this is important and why I love that we're at this section of Scripture as, as excruciatingly painful as today is probably going to be is that it's right at the beginning of the year because we're already at a natural pause in our lives. We're already at a natural kind of, okay, let's look at the data. We already, we already just intentionally kind of do that whether we wanted to or not. And maybe some of us make some commitments that last a couple hours or a few days or maybe some of us make commitments that last the whole year. But either way, you, you see now, you can now see with clear, as, as clear as maybe as you allowed it to be, but you can see what 2015 did and where it ended and where you're at. It's, it's, it's gone. It's not coming back. You're now in 2016. Well, the reason why I bring this up is that the, this section of Scripture in Matthew chapter 23, if you, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hands up and the ushers will bring it there. Before, before we get there, I want, I want to give a little context to kind of why this is, this is unique. So 
in Jesus's day, a couple hundred years before, before Jesus kind of sets in, in motion, this little sect of, of religious leaders kind of comes out and it's, they're called the Pharisees, the scribes. And they, they're, they're experts in the law of Moses, experts in the law of God. And they, they have been spending a bunch of time, the scribes rewriting and, and doing those things. Well, what happened is over the course of a couple hundred years, even before Jesus sets on, on stage, they started adding things to the law. They started adding things. Well, it's like, oh, we don't want to break the Sabbath because that's a commandment. So they started putting these extra things in place saying, well let's, well, let's make sure we have rules about what you can do in your house and what you can lift and how much weight you can lift. And so that all of these parameters so that if you fail at this one thing, you, you haven't come close to failing at breaking the Sabbath. But what the Pharisees did when they started out is, is they started out with the right intentions. They wanted to know God's word. They wanted to be experts of it. And they wanted to, to bring it to others and to share it with others. See, the Jews in this day believed that if they were descendants of Abraham, they were children of God. And so because of that, they had the key of knowledge. They had the keys to the kingdom of God. And so they were the ones that every other Jewish person would look at saying, what do we do? How do we follow God? Where are we at? And like we've learned very quickly when Jesus sits on the, on the scene, he doesn't get, take long. And we're at the Sermon on the Mount where he's denouncing most of what the Pharisees have said. And saying, no, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And so the Pharisees, in their own rearview mirror, if you had said to the Pharisees, whenever they began, there's this little group of people, and maybe this is how the Reformation, the Restoration Movement, they kind of sat in motion, and Catholicism, everything kind of started, and they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do it right, and this is what's going to happen. If you had told that group of Pharisees, those individuals, hey, just so you know what you start, a couple hundred years later, you're going to crucify the Messiah. They would have laughed at you. No way. We're going to do everything we can to pave the way that, so that when the Messiah comes, we can be his number one supporters. They had every intention of being God's servants, but they lost their way. Similar to my belief that a lot of us in here have lost our way. You had every intention of doing what God called you to do. You had every intention of, of living the way that God has designed for you to live, but a series of circumstances and relationships and choices and, 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 and ignorance or, or willful disobedience has gotten you to where you are today. And if you were to look at yourself back when you first came to Christ and said, hey, just so you know, at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, this is where you're going to be, you might have slapped someone in the face. Said, no way, I'm not going to be there. No way. I believe this wholeheartedly. I'm, I'm surrendered to this. God is my king. This will never happen. And insert life and difficult circumstances. And maybe some, some very painful people around you have done some really poor things to you. But either way, ultimately, where you're at right now is not where you intended to be. It's not even where you wanted to be. But now you've gotten to the spot, and this is what's so, this is what's so hard about this, guys is that the Jews in Jesus' day, their best option of religious leaders were Pharisees. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But, but what Jesus unraveled at the beginning of chapter 23, he said, look, these are the characteristics of a, of a Pharisee. And they are the opposite of what a disciple is, right? They are the characteristics of, of having no authority, having no sympathy, having no spirituality, having no integrity, and having no humility. Right? These, these guys are a mess. Their character is horrible. Don't be like them. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is wrong. And then what he does is after that huge, hey, by the way, these Pharisees, this is what they're characterized by. He then goes into saying, here are the things they do out of that character. Don't do those things. And so he, he lays out this, 
this really, really harsh denunciation to these, to these Pharisees and these religious leaders because he's saying, you got it backwards. And my fear is, a lot of us do too. Now, and the reason why I think this plays out so big, and we'll get there in a little bit, but the reason why I think this plays out so big is that just like Jesus' day where the Pharisees were, the, were the kind of the hope for all the Jewish people, well, if you bear the name of Christ, little Christian, Christian, little Christ, disciple of Jesus, follower of him, he's my homeboy, whatever words you like to use, right? You're the hope. You're the hope. And so that means that everyone you encounter at work or in your families or at school or in the coffee shop that you love to go, every single person that does not bear that name, they're looking to you to be the hope. And that's an issue if what you intended to be is not who you are today. That's a huge issue. It's not just an issue for you individually because obviously what Jesus says isn't fun, okay? But it's also an issue for those around you. And my fear is so many of us here, we've been burned or beat up or chewed out or spit up by the church. And so you know what we do as well-meaning Christians? We push against the bride of Christ. Bunch of hypocrites there. I'm out. Yeah, you know what? They're horrible. I hate them, every single one of them. You know what? This place would be better if the church just didn't exist. When we're saying the exact opposite of why Jesus was crucified. He's the bride of the church. How, how can we treat the church like a whore? And what happens is we are pushing against the very thing that's causing others to go, man, I want nothing to do with that. I want nothing to do that. And what's scary about that is if that's you or me, if that's where we are in this year, what's really scary about that is that Jesus has a very clear, clear destination of what that, that path leads to. He's very clear in this. He's not... He's not He's not using some ambiguous statements or terms. He's very clear about where they're at. And my fear is, is that most of us are not authentic in our faith. So before we get into this, I'm going I'm to talk about authenticity. The, the, the definition of authenticity is real, right? Not fake. <laughs> Something that is real. The opposite of authenticity is, is a hypocrite. And, and, and my fear is that there is no authenticity in all of us or any of us. In fact, if you were to sit down, let's use a science experiment again. You want to say, okay, is Bren authentic? Well, Bren would have to, I would have to, speaking third person apparently, I would have to look, okay, well, in this area, am I authentic in what I believe? If I believe Jesus is who he says he is, well, then there are things that Jesus calls me to do that, that, that bleed into every aspect of my life. I don't get to leave, leave out a section. And so then I have to go, okay, well, am I authentically following Jesus in my finances? Am I authentically following him in my relationships? Am I authentically following him in my, my eyes and my words and my, everything that he's called me to do in this Bible? Am I authentically following him in the way that he has prescribed me to live because it's for his glory I live? When I gather the data and I look at my life, I go, man, pretty authentic here. I am sort of authentic. There's, I have some really times of inauthenticity here. And so what I want to challenge you as a church, if, if you're willing, and you don't have to, you can say, you know what, forget you, I'm out here. I don't care, right? I want to challenge you that maybe 2016 is a year where authenticity becomes the forefront of who you are. Maybe, maybe this is the year where you commit and say, you know what, I am, I am done pretending I am done being inauthentic. In fact, James 2, I'll just read it to you real quickly, has a very clear definition of, I believe, what authenticity looks like. Okay? It's, it's, it's very, very clear. James 2, 18. So someone will say, you have faith and I have works. I say, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith 
by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you not? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham the father of faith, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So authenticity means I believe this, and I do the same thing. Authenticity says this is my belief, so I live in that belief. My, my fear is, and as a, as a pastor church, my fear is, is a number of you, those do not line up at all. And, and those, are, those are grossly opposite in certain areas of your life. Where you, if you were honest and you did some real data and you had some, a bunch of really smart scientists come around and look at every aspect of your life, they say, well, that doesn't add up. That doesn't add up. How, 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 how can you say that authenticity is what you're marked by when this is not this? You're saying one thing and doing something drastically different. And my hope is that, is that 2016 is a year. For those of you that are, that are, that are willing to say, you know what, maybe I don't have it figured out. Maybe I, I may need a little help from God where, where he's going he's gonna to start taking aspects of your life and making you more authentic. And not for your glory so someone can look and go, oh, brand pat on the back, good job, buddy, you're so authentic. No, so that when you operate and live, you can say, I believe what I, what I believe, and I live out of that belief. So that even when you're hanging out with someone in the coffee shop or a family member, they say, okay, you know what? I don't agree with that person, but at least he fully believes it, and he lives it. Man, I don't really, I don't really like what he says he believes or she, she believes, but man, at least they're not faking it. And that's what Jesus is speaking into. He's speaking into the lack of authenticity that is in the religious leaders of this day. And, and that's what I want to challenge all of you today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next couple weeks, if you want to, we're going to point out areas in our life where Jesus is going to say, is this authentic or not? Are, are, you, are you a hypocrite or not? And that's what Jesus is going to push on. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. I believe God is, is going to call each of us to more authenticity. It's just us being submitted to that and maybe even allowing that to happen. And some of you, what's, what's scary is some of you can look back on 2015 and those, those, those steps and those choices that got you to where you are, they were willful, understandable, knowable choices. They weren't some accident. You said, I choose this and this and this. And so when you look back at 2015, you go, well, I know where I am because I made those choices. But then yet you come in here and you say, but I believe in Jesus and his love is so good and he's awesome and he is good and he is awesome. But to, but to remain in God's love means to obey him. Jesus tells us that. And when we obey him, our joy is complete and full. So, so maybe 2016 year, more authenticity, maybe you'll actually experience a little bit more joy too because you'll start living in his presence. Okay. Starting on to the fun stuff. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Okay, so a couple things. I want to define a few things. First, woe is actually not a word, okay? It's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of an interjection. It's a sound and sense, and it's a, it, it means a couple different things. But in the New Testament, predominantly, it's, it's completely at the same time a, a term of a sorrow and judgment. It, they're, they're like, it's, 
100% the same. It's a really weird way to go about it. They, the, it, is, it is a word that suggests an outcry of angry and pain. An outcry of anger and pain. So it's, it's one and the same. So when Jesus says, woe, it carries with it the weight of judgment, but out of the heart of sorrow. Does that make sense? You got it's really key. It's not he's not just looking and saying, Well, woe to you, you know, you old yeah, like pointing at him and hitting him with a cane. I don't know why I did that, but that's what I thought, right? He's not doing that. He's not some disgruntled, angry person just trying to hit them. He's actually coming at them with sorrow in this sorrow. Where this sorrow ends up is judgment. He's using it at the same time. So when Jesus uses the word woe, and predominantly when it's used in the New Testament, it's a combination of sorrow and judgment at once. It's not just judgment and, and condemning and, and this we're at, but it's, it's breathed out of a heart of sorrow. I, I fully believe this. We don't, we don't get this. We, we don't know where the Pharisees are. We know there was a small sect of Pharisees in their day that truly surrendered. Nicodemus was one of them. But, but most of the Pharisees were gone. I believe that if, if Jesus was in this setting and he said this, woe to you, and he did this one thing, and he comes out, and one of those Pharisees is like, you know what? I'm ruined. I can't believe it. You're right, Jesus. I'm out. I, I shouldn't be this way. I've been this way 40, 50 years of my life. Now I just, I need to be clean. Bring me, bring me peace. And they surrendered him. I believe at that moment, Jesus would say, come to me, child. Come to me, child. Yeah, yes. I receive you. See, it's not that they're too far gone. It's that their heart was so hardened. They were so stuck on their religious system. They were so stuck in their ways that they had no desire to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, how many miracles did he do in front of them? They still figured out a way to justify how they weren't a miracle. Similar to some of you right now, in your rearview mirror, you like to justify things as circumstances, a chance. No. No, that's foolish. That's God's hand. You're just too prideful to admit it. There have been instances in your past where things have happened and you're like, well, just, man, it's crazy chance, crazy circumstance. And God's going, no, 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 child, child, don't you see I'm working here? I'm doing something. And you're, you're too prideful to see it right now, but I'm doing something. And so he says to these disciples, he says to these Pharisees, he says, they, they have shut the doors of the kingdom. Now, this is interesting. So the Pharisees, um, believed because they were Jewish, of Jewish descent, children of Abraham, and most of the Jews understood this, that they had the key of knowledge. They had the keys of the kingdom. So any, any Jewish religious leader at that point knew that their role was to carry the keys of knowledge, to pass the key of knowledge on to carry the kingdom of heaven. The idea that there's a gate in place, although there are no pearly white gates, we don't know what that looks like, right? But, but they had the keys to opening that to others around them. Well, Jesus is saying, no, no, no. What you guys have done is you've actually shut the gate, locked the door, and thrown the key away, and no one is coming in around you. You've actually not only been a hypocrite, which he comes out with right away, but you've also kept others from seeing God's truth. And so the Pharisees, in their religious system, in there where they believe they're doing everything that God called them to do to uphold his laws and commands, they lost it, and they're actually withholding other people from the kingdom of God. They're a hindrance to the other people of the kingdom of God. This is why most people that are outside of the church say, I don't want to be in the church because of the hypocrites. So I hate to say it, but there's a lot of us in here at times where we've been very pharisaical and we're actually shutting those out from the kingdom of God. We are a hindrance to them seeing his life and his hope and his truth. And so Jesus is saying, this is what the Pharisees have done. They've, they've closed the door. They've locked the gate and no one is getting in around him. And he says, woe to you. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You think you're doing the right thing and you're so far gone. Verse, uh, verse, verse 
sorry, verse 14. I want to go back. So for verse 13, verse 14 is not in your Bible if you have ESV. If you have NASB, it's in parentheses. Verse 14 is, um, you're like, wait, what? You're not looking at the numbers, right? Just skips it. Verse 14 is not actually in the earliest manuscripts of Matthew. It's in, in a couple later manuscripts. Now, verse 14 talks about how Pharisees were devouring widows and doing that. Um, Mark 12 and Luke 20 both talk about that very thing, and they're both in their section of woes. And so most likely what happened is an early transcriber inset this verse into these woes to make them all kind of match, but it's not in there. In fact, in most of the manuscripts it's in, it's either before or after verse 13. So most scholars just seem to think that it should just be out. It's still very applicable. So what the Pharisees were doing, which is which is pretty sad is what they were doing is, is in time is they would come to the widows and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we have to, we have to take care of the widows. And so what you need to do is widows, give us your land and your stuff and we will care for you. Well, what they were doing is they were getting the land and the money and the resources and kind of just ixnate the whole caring for you part. And they just totally devoured widows' homes. And what they would do is they'd take all that money and say, well, you know, if you really want God's blessing to care for you, because a widow is a, is a scary thing in this time and age, no, how are you going to be taken care of? You need to rely on the church to do so, which is actually what they were supposed to do. But they didn't care for him. They took all their money, they devoured their homes, and they never cared for him. And so it's still a very applicable section. It's still very, it makes a lot of sense. It's in Luke 12, and, or Luke 20 and Mark 12. But, but here it probably wasn't in this early manuscript. These Pharisees were just so far gone, so far gone. Verse 15. In verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisee hypocrites. He begins it the same way. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when, when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Okay, there's a couple things we've got to define in this. Proselyte is a term which essentially means approached or drawn near. It's, it's, what, they would, it's what they would do to bring people into faith. Now, what's unique about this is if you go back to the story of Jonah and the whale. Anyone know that? Like Nineveh, go, go tell them about their freedom. Jonah's like, no, I don't want to do that. Those Gentile, ugly people, they're horrible. They don't deserve God's grace. And the story unfolds not great for, <laughs> for Jonah, but great for the people of Nineveh, right? And so he, he does this. Well, since then, what had happened is, is some of the Jewish people, instead of just hating the Gentiles, believed that it was their job to convert Gentiles into Judaism. And so what they were doing is they were working really, really hard at doing this. In fact, to go by land and sea is, is they didn't have jet boats, okay, and they didn't have planes. So it wasn't exactly a short distance. So they would go extremely far to bring Gentiles into Judaism. Okay, now two would come out of that. They would call them the, the, um, the people of righteousness and the people of the gate. And those are the two Gentiles that would kind of be the term of those that would choose to follow God's ways. Now, the people of the gate were not liked as much by the Pharisees or the religious leaders because what they did is they believed in God. They surrendered to God and they would worship with them in their synagogues and would worship with them on their temple, but they did not submit themselves to all of the extra things that the Pharisees wanted them to do. So then the, the people of righteousness were the Gentiles that even if they're male and like, you know, 35 years old getting circumcised going, okay, you're, you're truly a Jewish person. And so what would happen is, is they, would, they would have these people, they were calling them people righteous because they succumbed and followed every single way of the Pharisees and religious leaders. So much so that there was like pride in, in the Pharisees. If they had one of those, one of the people righteous, like, yeah, this is, this is Joe. 
I brought Joe. And it was like, look at what I've done. And they would hold Joe up as this was this ugly, horrible Gentile person. And now look at, he is, he is fully following God in our religious system, in our ways. He's even circumcised. Poor guy. It was painful. I saw it, man. It was no good, right? Like, like this guy's in, he's in. And this, this family, they're in, they, they're following Jesus. And, and the Pharisees would hold them up in high esteem. Now, what was bad about that? Well, a couple things. One is, you see this through the, the 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 righteousness people were actually the wrong ones, the ones of the gate, the the Gentiles that just submitted to God and didn't follow all this religious system were the ones that got it right. But what was unique about this is that there was immense pride in this, and they would hold these people up and they would say, "Look at what we've done." And then what would happen is this this proselyte, they would be more zealous and more passionate than the Pharisee that brought them, because think about it. If your whole life, all you know is you are a second-class citizen, not welcome to partake of the God of the Jewish people, and all of a sudden, if you succumb and follow their little system, you're now getting all the rights that the Jewish people had, you're like, whoo, look at me, this is amazing. And so then that person would be that much more zealous, that much more excited, that much more passionate to go to his Gentile brothers and sisters and say, look, guys, I figured a way out. I figured a way where we can get into this whole system. Come on, do it. And so they were more zealous than even the Pharisee that would follow them or that brought them over. And so this idea that they were a double dose of hell, it's, it's, not, it's not that there was like a second level tier of this or whatever. What he's essentially saying is that, is that their zeal is going to win probably more people for the wrong thing. And he's saying, but the, the end result is the same thing. The Pharisees and this proselyte are righteous. They're ending the same place. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no secondary option for them. And so they would work so hard to make these disciples, to make these little mini Pharisees so hard. They did so much busy work. And this is, this is my question for you. How, how hard are you working? I bet some of you are like, man, you know what? I was here early. I set up and I plan on staying late. And I'm going to tear down. And you know, what? I went to a service and I went and served in kids. And man, I am like, look at me. Awesome. I'm working so hard, right? And you start getting pride and, and arrogance about what you do. And you've lost the reason why you're doing it. Some of you, you're like, man, I go to church every single Sunday. I mean, I, I hate it when I get there. <laughs> I hate it on the way there. It's hard to get myself out of bed and I hate it afterwards. But man, I'm there every single week. And I'm like, it is not going to change that. It's busy work. It's busy work. You're, you're, you're working really, really, really hard for the whole wrong reasons, which Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is that your reward's in full for the, the awareness of what man has seen in you. It's busy work, and that's what, the, that's what these Pharisees were doing, is they were working really, really hard to create these disciples, and they thought they were doing the right thing, but they were doing it all selfishly motivated, and they were not creating disciples of Christ. They were creating disciples of themselves. And some of you are working so hard to, to please God when, when he has satisfied you in, in you as a child of his. Some of you are working so hard to try and make ends. Like, I do this, and I do this, and I do this. And you're trying to, to fix something. And it's not that serving is bad. We need it. And like, please stay. Tear down chairs. It'd be awesome, Right? It's not that serving kids is a bad thing. In fact, it's a beautiful thing. But you're doing it with all the wrong motivation, the wrong heart. And you know what? Unfortunately, we have a clear picture of what that's called. It's called Pharisee. And it's like, yeah, there's times you're going to have to do things out of obedience that you don't want to do. I get that. Believe me, I get that. But if that's all it ever is for you, then you've got the wrong heart going into it. 
and God is trying to do something and you, it's, 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 a, it's a you issue. It's not a God issue. Busy work. Then verse 16, he goes on. Verse 16 says, Woe to you, blind guide. So he changes, instead of calling them hypocrites now, he changes his name calling, right? So blind guides would have been a really, really, I mean, hypocrite was already offensive, but blind guide was a really, really offensive thing to something that the Pharisees would have held in high regard. So the, the Pharisees would have believed at this day, I mean, like to the core of who they were, that they were a guide to the blind. That was, that was a term that they would understand. We are a guide to the blind because we have the keys of the kingdom. We have the keys of knowledge. We are, we are, the bli- a bl- uh, we are a guide to the blind. That's who we are. So Jesus <laughs> uses that very identifying term and name and turns it upside down and says, you blind guides. It's not the first time. Matthew 15, he says, the blind guide leading the blind, they both end up in a pit. So he's, it's not the first time he's used this. But he, he calls instead of saying hypocrite, he says, you guys are blind. You have no idea where you're going. You think you have an idea where you're going. You are so far off. Your trajectory is, is comical how different it is. In fact, it needs to be turned upside down. So it says, you, you blind guides. So he changes it to a little bit harsher term. <laughs> if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Let's just throw that one in there again. This is probably not feeling good at this point, just in case you're wondering. For which is greater, the gold or the, or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now this doesn't make a lot of sense because we don't do a lot of oaths today, right? We never say, I promise, I swear, no, no, I'm on my mother's grave. We don't do that, right? None of us have ever said that. None of us have ever done like a little, you know, white lie, a little fib, right? It's for someone's good. I'm just protecting them, right? We don't ever, ever do that, right? This is what Jesus is pointing at. I think it's so unique is that he's, he's coming into, he's saying, look, one of the things that is characterized out of a Pharisee is their lack of integrity. The way that that shows up is in their mouth. And this is, guys, this isn't the first time Jesus has taught about this. In fact, he, he told us in this, just after the Sermon on the Mount, you let your yes be yes and your no be no. And that's it. James reiterated it again for us. See, they had, in this day and age, they had created a system which is so unique. They had created a system into which that they could spiritualize lying. This is literally what they did. They, so they had the system. It's like, okay, you can't make an oath on, on the, the, the sacrifice at the altar, but you can make an oath by the altar and not keep it. So if you're going to say, hey, I'm going to pay you back, just make sure you make the oath by the right one. Because if you make it by this, you have to pay him back. But if you make it by this, you don't have to. You don't have to pay him back. And so what they had done is they had created a religious system on a holy God's place and made it desecrately, grossly unholy. So they basically said, okay, we can't trust my word. Because, you know, this day there wasn't, I don't know, how, how am I going to tell you you're telling the truth? So they created this whole intricate oath system. And this is what you could make an oath by, and this is what you couldn't make an oath by. But what's funny is, is the whole you, you could make an oath by was just in case you don't want to follow through with it. You're not bound to it. And what's unique about that, guys, is, is in their day and age, the altar was the presence of God. 
And you, you realize like the altar was the place in which the holiness of God dwelt in their presence. So, so, so they're taking the most holiest of places and they are using that as a way to make oaths to be deceitful. Similar to, I think, a lot of us with Jesus Christ. See, we don't have an altar today. There's no altar up here. Our altar is Jesus Christ. And many of us use his name to be deceitful and lie. You don't say that, All right? right? Let, me, let me tell you how it plays out. Oh, Jesus will love me anyways. Who cares? I know, Jesus, he's a holy God, but he's full of grace. That's great. And so it's just, it's just one lie. It's just, it's just, it's just a little bit of, it's just a little bit of porn, or it's just a little bit of unfaithfulness, or it's just a little bit of deceit, or, you know, I only stole a little bit, and the, the company's never going to notice it anyways. Jesus, Jesus will forgive us. What you're doing is you're taking the holiness of God, and you're trying to put it at our level so that it's attainable. That is foolish. In fact, you know, if you, you bear the name of Christ, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, you know what you are? Every single one of you. Your sons and daughters of Christ, you're a holy priesthood. Holy. You're holy. You're not half holy. <laughs> you're not part sort of holy. You are a holy priesthood, co-heir with Jesus Christ to the kingdom of God. And you want to take and take that holiness that we don't deserve, that holiness that we could never, ever, ever, ever attain on our own, and you want to bring it down to a level that's attainable so that you can, you can feel like you can exist in that? That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're dropping this thing down saying, okay, well, here we go. This is about as, as holy as it needs to be. Let's just, let's just operate here. I'm comfortable with this because up here, I can't do that. You're right, you can't, but God has done it for you through Jesus Christ. So why make light and small of what Jesus Christ has done? Why pretend you know what? It's comical. I'm a, I'm a pastor, and it usually comes out, and everyone knows that. Whenever you're meeting someone, like, what do you do for a living? It's like, I work for a church, and the conversation always kind of turns, whether good or bad at that point, right? But you know what's amazing is I have a bunch of friends that aren't believers. I mean, a bunch of friends that aren't believers. And I'll be hanging out with them, <laughs> and they'll do it. And it's really funny, and they'll do this all the time. And if you, if you go to church, you spend time around believers, I'm sure you've experienced this too. And they'll be saying something, and they'll drop, like, the biggest and nastiest of F-bombs in front of me. You know, they'll be like, oh, and they'll look at me like, Oh, sorry, Bren. And they apologize to me. Like, I'm like, it's, it's okay, dude. Like, you're not, you're okay. Like, it doesn't matter. What's funny to me is here's someone who has no hope in Jesus Christ, but recognizes that there's a separation of holiness between him and me. And I don't mean that to mean that I'm holier than he is. But you know what's unique about that? Is I can spend the same amount of time around those of us that call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ and never once apologize for the way they speak. What have we done? The, the amount of grossness and deceit and gossip and slander that comes out of our mouths. You know what Jesus says in, in Matthew 15? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and that defiles a person. So why is it that someone that has no hope in Jesus can recognize that what they're doing is, is not what Jesus would call, but those of us that profess his name operate as if it doesn't really matter. We're hypocrites. We lack Authenticity. And this is the first woe that he hits the, the Pharisees with. The big section about their oaths and their, their mouth and what they say. Can your word be trusted or not? My, my thing is, you guys got to start slapping yourself in the face if you have to say, I promise or I swear or anything. Like, no, sorry, my yes is my yes, my no is my no. And when you mistake that, when you say something wrong, you, if it's a stranger and they say, how's your day going? Ah, oh, it's great. And your day is horrible. You look at that stranger and say, hey, I'm sorry. I just lied to you. 
my day sucks, but I didn't want to burden you with it. Okay? And just watch how the conversation goes. I promise. It's beautiful. But it's called authenticity. We're so afraid because we're so prideful. We're so prideful. But the, the, the call, we're, you know, First Peter tells us we're called to be holy. Not half holy. Not pretend holy. You know what's funny is that the term hypocrite was actually a good term when it was first created. It was meant and used for actors that were acting a part. Oh, he's such a good hypocrite because he could pretend to be someone else. Oh, she's such a good hypocrite. Look at that. She can do that. And you, did, you had no idea that she wasn't herself. She was actually this person. Hypocrite was used in a positive way. Just in case you're wondering, when Jesus is using it at this point, anytime today, it's not a positive term. In fact, my fear is a lot of you are pretending right now. You're pretending to be something you're not. And you think that it's what God wants for you. And that's not it. You're, you're, you're pretending that you love Jesus when you really don't. You're pretending that you hate God when you really don't hate God. You're, you're playing a part. You're pretending to be a faithful husband, yet you can't get your eyes off the computer screen. You're pretending to be a sober-minded person, yet you cannot stop getting drunk or going to drugs. You're pretending that you believe that your body is a temple, and yet you continually do gross and horrific things that God calls you not to do. You're pretending. You know what that makes you? It makes you a hypocrite. It makes me a hypocrite. And I know that's not something that's like, yay, we heard that. That's great. Awesome. I'm a hypocrite. But here's, here's, here's the part you have to remember. No matter what's in your rearview mirror, no matter how hypocritical you've been, no matter how far your pretending's gone, God has never been confused by you. He knows exactly who you are. He knows what he created you for. And you know what he's still willingly doing? Holding his arms and say, I love you. Come to me. My grace is sufficient for 2015 and 14 and 13 and 12 and every year prior. My grace is sufficient for every year prior to or going forward. Stop pretending. Stop running from me and come to me. So what is it with you? The band's going to come up and we're going we're gonna to worship a little bit more. And I want to I challenge you. Ephesians 4 tells us that we, we should, therefore, we should, we should put off all falsehood. And I love that because it's like, it's like taking off a garment. That's what that means. I mean, literally, like, to lay it down. And some of you, like, right now, before you even stand up to worship, which I encourage you to stand up and worship and worship God with all your heart. But some of you need to, you need to go through that process. You need to lay down that thing. You need, to, you need to take that falsehood off. Whatever it is that you're saying, you know what, God, this isn't, this isn't what you've called for me. In fact, I remember at the beginning of 2015, you told me to do this, and I didn't do it. Now it's 2016 again, and I want to do this. And you need to just lay that down and say, God, give me the strength with your spirit to do what you've called me to do. I need to lay it down. I need to lay down this falsehood. Because, again, what's, what's so scary about this is that, is that every single one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the key to his kingdom. And that means that your interactions with every other person around you is, is, is meant to be pointing them to his kingdom, not yours. And so if you aren't willing to dive into authenticity, then what you're going to be is fake. And what you're going to do is perpetuate the cycle of, you know what, the church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of fake people, and this is just how it is. Or, or you can say, you know what, I'm done. And you can make this year about authenticity. And right now, the way that we need to start with it is with our mouths. 
We need to start actually doing the things that we say we believe and not let those things be compartmentalized because they don't ever work compartmentalized and live it out that way. The coolest and most amazing thing, guys, is God has already given you a way to be authentic. He did it through Jesus Christ. And his promises, Jesus' promise, and we'll get there shortly, is when he leaves that he sends his spirit to live inside of us. And his spirit's desire is to be holy because he is holy. And the spirit's desire is to make you like Jesus because that's what we're called to do for his glory and his glory alone. So not only do you have the way to it, but you also have the means to do so. Some of you, you just got to start looking in the rearview mirror with a little bit more honesty. Because I can promise you, those Pharisees at the very beginning did not see where they were going. There was no way they would have said, no way will we, will we crucify the Messiah. No way, we're going to be behind him. We're going to be his front runners. And my fear is a lot of you, as a pastor, I fear this, like, you're going you're gonna to end your journey here, this short, 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 short time on this earth. You're going to stand before God and he's going to say, I never knew you because you spent so much time pretending to know him down here. It's not, it's not worth pretending. And that may mean that some of you, you got to have some really hard conversations with spouses and friends and, and, and maybe you need to come to, to the pastors or to leadership or you need, to, you need to talk about like, hey, I'm, I'm struggling and I need to be rid of this and I'm ready to be rid of this. And it's going to be hard work, but here's what I promise. Here's what I promise. When you lean into God, he shows up. Here's what I promise. When, when you trust God, you find your peace. doesn't mean the circumstances get easy. Trust me, it doesn't mean the circumstances get easy, but you have peace, a peace that makes no sense that's talked about in Philippians. Because the God of, of, of the universe, the God that created you, the God that loves you in spite of your choices, in spite of your 2015 or 13 or 14, whatever year you're trying to wipe from the slate, he says, I don't care about what incremental steps took you there. I'm going to take you back to where you belong. You're holy. You're set apart for me and my purposes and my kingdoms. Now live in that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the difficulty um, it brings in our life sometimes. God, I pray that these wouldn't just be words that we hear. God, I pray that you would start working and chipping away at areas in which we are, we are not authentic. We have past hurts or wounds or, or damage or, or anger or bitterness. God, I pray that you just uproot that stuff in our hearts. Free us to, to love you and to be free the way you've, you've called us to be the way that you um, created a way for us to be through Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we not pretend anymore. May we not pretend. God, would you bring about us a, a bout of authenticity that would bring um, a, a shake to this kingdom, to your kingdom here in this valley. God, may we be a people where we'd see that 2016 is a year where you start doing amazing things in family members and friends and coffee shop people or employees or, or, or coworkers that we cannot, or schoolmates that we cannot imagine happening but bringing hope to them because you've, you've brought us to a spot of authenticity. And as we carry the key of knowledge, may we do it in a way that brings you glory alone. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen.